Section 9 of The Jolly Parisienne and Other Novelettes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lisa Reichert. Mademoiselle Flavie by Emile Zola, translated by George D. Cox. Chapter 4 Treachery. During the whole of the eighteen months that Nantes had been a minister, he had been trying to drown the past by superhuman toil. On the day after the scene in his study he had had an interview with Baron d'Anvilliers, and Flavie, acting on her father's advice, had consented to return to her husband's roof. But they spoke no word together except when they were forced to play a comedy in the eyes of the world. Nantes had determined not to leave his house. In the evening his secretaries came to him from the ministry, and he got through all his work at home. It was at this period of his life that he performed his greatest deeds. A secret voice suggested lofty and fruitful aspirations to him. Whenever he passed by, a murmur of sympathy and admiration was heard. But he remained insensible to eulogy. It may be said that he worked without hope of reward, with the sole idea of performing prodigies of which the only aim was to compass the impossible. At each step on his upward career he consulted Flavie's face. Was she touched at last? Did she pardon him his former baseness? Had she still any thought save of the development of his intellect? But never did he surprise any emotion on this woman's mute countenance, and he said to himself, as he redoubled his efforts, I am not high enough for her yet. I must mount, still mount. He was determined to compel happiness, as he had compelled fortune. All his old belief in his power returned. He would not admit that there was any other lever in this world. It was will which produced humanity. When discouragement seized him at times, he shut himself up so that no one should witness the weakness of his flesh. His struggles could only be read in his deep-set, dark-circled eyes, in which an intense flame blazed. He was devoured by jealousy now. To fail to win Flavie's love was a torture, but the thought that she might surrender herself to another drove him mad. By way of asserting her liberty, it was quite possible that she might openly associate with Monsieur de Fondette. Her husband affected not to occupy himself with her, but all the time he endured agony whenever she absented herself, even if it were only for an hour. If he had not feared to make himself look ridiculous, he would have followed her in the streets. That course displeasing him, he determined to have someone beside her whose devotion he could purchase. Mademoiselle Chouin remained an intimate of the house. The baron was used to her, not to mention that she knew too much to make it advisable to get rid of her. At one time the old maid had resolved to retire on the twenty thousand francs that Nantes had paid over to her on the day after his marriage, but she had, no doubt, calculated that there would be further pickings to such a household. So she awaited her opportunity, having found, moreover, that she needed yet another twenty thousand francs to buy the long-desired notary's house at Rainville, the little market-town she came from. There was no occasion for Nantes to mince matters with this old lady, whose pious mien no longer deceived him. However, on the morning when he called her into his study, and openly proposed to her that she should keep him informed as to his wife's slightest actions, she professed to be insulted, and asked him what he took her for. 
"'Come,' he said impatiently. "'I'm very busy. Someone is waiting for me. Let us be brief, please.' But she would listen to nothing which was not couched in proper terms. One of her principles was that things are not ugly in themselves, that they only become ugly, or cease to be, according to the way in which they are presented. "'Very well,' said Nantes. "'A good action is involved in this. I am fearful that my wife is hiding some grief from me.' "'For the last few weeks I have observed that she has been very much depressed, "'and I thought that you could find out the cause of it.' "'You can count on me,' said Mademoiselle Chouin, "'with a maternal outburst on hearing these words. "'I am devoted to your wife, "'and I will do anything for the sake of her honour or your own. "'From to-morrow we will keep a watch on her.' "'Nantes promised to reward the old maid for her services.' She pretended to be angry at first, but she had the adroitness to make him fix a sum, and it was agreed that he should give her ten thousand francs upon her furnishing him, with a formal proof of his wife's good or bad conduct. Little by little they had come to call things by their proper names. From that time forward Nantes was less uneasy. Three months passed, and he was engaged upon a great task, the preparation of the budget, with the Emperor's sanction he had introduced some important modifications into the financial system, and he knew that he would be fiercely attacked in the chamber, and he had to prepare a large quantity of documents. Frequently he sat up all night, and his hard work deadened him, as it were, and made him patient. Whenever he saw Mademoiselle Chouin, he questioned her briefly. Did she know anything? Had his wife made many visits? Had she stopped long at certain houses? Mademoiselle Chouin kept a journal of the slightest facts, but so far she had not succeeded in making any important discovery. Nantes felt reassured whilst the old woman occasionally blinked her eyes, saying that she should, perhaps, have some news for him soon. The truth was that Mademoiselle Chouin had indulged in further reflection. Ten thousand francs was not enough. She needed twenty thousand to purchase the notary's house. She at first thought of selling herself to the wife, after having sold herself to the husband, but she knew Flavie, and she was fearful of being dismissed at the first word. For a long time past, before she had even been charged with this matter, she had kept watch over Madame Nantes on her own account, remarking to herself that the servant's profits lie in the master's or mistress's vices. However, she had discovered that she had to deal with a virtue which was all the more rigid since it was based upon pride. One effect of Flavie's sin had been that it had inspired her with a hatred of men. So Mademoiselle Chouin was in despair when one day she met Monsieur Desfondettes in the street. He questioned her so eagerly about her mistress that she plainly realized that he was anxious to see her again. Thereupon she made up her mind. She would serve both the admirer and the husband— a combination worthy of genius. Everything favoured her. Monsieur Desfondettes, having been repulsed by Flavie and thereby driven to despair, would have given his fortune to renew the acquaintance, and it was he who first sounded Mademoiselle Chouin. He met her again, affected sentiment, and swore that he would kill himself if she did not help him. At the end of a week's time, after a great outlay of sensibility on the one side, and of scruples on the other, the matter was settled. He was to give her ten thousand francs, and she was to conceal him one evening in Flavie's apartments. 
The arrangement having been arrived at, Mademoiselle Chouin sought Nantes. "'What have you learned?' he asked, turning pale. She would not say anything definite at first. She merely remarked that her mistress was certainly carrying on a flirtation, and that she even made appointments. "'The facts! The facts!' hissed Nantes, furiously impatient. At last she mentioned Monsieur Desfondettes' name. "'This evening he will be in her private apartments.' "'Very good. Thank you,' stammered Nantes, and he sent her off with a wave of the hand. He was afraid of giving way before her. This abrupt dismissal astonished and delighted the old woman, for she had prepared herself for a long cross-examination, and had even arranged her answers so as not to contradict herself. She made a bow and then retired, putting on a mournful face. Nantes had risen. As soon as he was alone, he said aloud, this evening, in her private rooms. Then he carried his hands to his head as if he feared it would burst. This appointment, under his own roof, seemed to him monstrously impudent. He could not allow himself to be insulted in that fashion. He clenched his fists, and his rage made him think of murder. And yet he had his task to finish, those budgetary documents to complete. Three times he sat down at his table, Three times a heaving of his whole body raised him to his feet again. Whilst behind him, something seemed to be urging him to go at once to his wife and denounce her. At last, however, he conquered himself and resumed his work, swearing that he would strangle them both that very evening. It was the greatest victory that he had ever won over his feelings. That same afternoon, Nantes went to submit to the emperor the definite plan of his budget, the sovereign, having raised certain objections, he discussed them with perfect clearness, but it became necessary that he should modify an important part of his programme, a difficult matter as the debate was to take place on the next day. "'I will pass the night over it,' he said, and on his way home he thought, "'I'll kill them at midnight, and I shall have the whole night afterwards to finish this task.' At dinner that evening, Baron d'Anvilliers began talking about the budget, which was making some little stir. He did not approve of all his son-in-law's views on financial matters, but he admitted that they were very broad and very remarkable. Whilst Nantes was replying to the Baron, he fancied on several occasions that he noticed his wife's eyes fixed upon him. She frequently looked at him in this way now. Her glance was not softened, however. She simply listened, and seemed to be trying to read his thoughts. Nantes fancied that she feared she was betrayed. Accordingly, he made an effort to appear careless. He talked a good deal, affected to be very animated, and finally overcame the objections of his father-in-law, who gave way to his great intellect. Flavie was still looking at him, and suddenly a hardly perceptible glimpse of tenderness darted across her face. Nantes worked in his study until midnight. Little by little he had become absorbed in his task, and soon he lost consciousness of everything save this creation of his brain, this financial scheme which he had painfully constructed, piece by piece, in the midst of innumerable obstacles. When the clock struck twelve, he instinctively raised his head. Deep silence reigned in the house. Suddenly he recollected everything. Treachery was lurking in this silent darkness but it was a trial for him to leave his seat. He laid his pen down regretfully, and took a few steps as if in obedience to a will which had forsaken him. 
then his face flushed, and a flame blazed in his eyes. He darted for his wife's room. That evening Flavie had dismissed her maid early, saying that she wished to be alone. Until midnight she remained in the little boudoir which adjoined her bedroom. Stretched on a sofa she had taken up a book, but at every instant this book fell from her hands and, closing her eyes, she became absorbed in thought. Her face still wore a softened expression, and a faint smile played upon it at intervals. Suddenly she started up. There was a knock outside. "'Who is there?' she asked. "'Open the door,' replied Nantas. She was so surprised that she opened it mechanically. Never before had her husband presented himself in this way. He entered the room half distracted. His rage had mastered him while he ascended the stairs. Mademoiselle Chouin, who was watching for him on the landing, had just told him that Monsieur Desfondettes had been there for some hours. Accordingly, he was determined to show his wife no mercy. "'There is a man concealed in your bedroom,' said he. Flavie did not reply at first, so greatly did these words surprise her. At last she grasped their meaning. "'You are mad, sir,' she answered. But without stopping to argue, he was already on his way to the bedroom. Then, with one bound, she threw herself before the door, crying, "'You shall not go in. These are my rooms, and I forbid you to enter them.' Quivering with passion and looking taller in her pride, she guarded the door. For a moment they stood thus, motionless, speechless, gazing into one another's eyes. Nantas, his head bent forward, his arms expanded, was about to throw himself upon her to force a passage. "'Come away from that door,' he said in a hoarse whisper. "'I'm stronger than you, and go in I will.' "'You shall not go in. I will not permit it.' Almost beside himself, Nantas could only keep repeating, "'There is a man in there. There is a man in there.' Flavie, not even deigning to deny it, shrugged her shoulders. Then, as her husband took another step forward, she cried, and supposing that there is a man in there, what difference does that make to you? Am I not free? He recoiled at these words, which struck him like a blow. It was quite true. She was free. A cold shudder ran through him. He plainly realized that she had the best of the argument, and that he was playing the part of a feeble and illogical child. He was not observing the compact. His foolish passion had made it hateful to him. Why had he not remained at work in his study? The blood fled from his cheeks, and an indefinable look of suffering overspread his face. When Flavie saw his pitiable condition, she left the door, whilst a tender gleam came into her eyes. Look, she said simply, and then she passed into the bedroom herself, carrying a lamp in her hand, whilst Nantas remained standing at the door. He had made her a sign as if to say that it was sufficient, and that he did not wish to enter. But it was she who insisted now. When she had drawn aside the curtains, and Monsieur de Fondette appeared concealed behind them, so intense was her amazement that she uttered a cry of horror. "'It was true,' she stammered. "'It was true this man was here. But I did not know it. On my life I swear it.' Then, with an effort, she calmed herself, and even seemed to regret the impulse which had led her to defend herself. "'You were right, sir, and I crave your pardon,' she said to Nantas, endeavouring to speak in her usual tone of voice. 
Monsieur de Fondette, however, felt somewhat foolish, and would have given a good deal if the husband had only flown into a passion. But Nantes remained silent. He had simply turned very pale. When he had carried his eyes from Monsieur de Fondette to Flavie, he bowed to the latter, merely saying, "'Excuse me, madame, you are free.' Then he turned and walked away. Something seemed broken within him. Merely the machinery of muscle and bone still worked. When he reached his study again, he walked straight to a drawer where he kept a revolver. Having examined the weapon, he said aloud, as if making a formal engagement with himself, "'That suffices. I will kill myself presently.' He turned up his lamp, sat down at his table, and quietly resumed his work. Amid the deep silence, he completed, without an instant's hesitation, a sentence that he had left unfinished. One by one fresh sheets of paper swelled the heap. Two hours later, when Flavie, who had driven Monsieur Desfondettes away, came down with bare feet to listen at the door, she only heard the sound of her husband's pen scratching the paper. She bent down and applied her eye to the keyhole. Nantes was still calmly writing. His face was expressive of peace and satisfaction at his work. But a ray of the lamp fell upon the barrel of the revolver at his side. End of chapter 4